This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture Card. Earn unlimited 2x miles on every purchase. Plus, earn unlimited 5x miles on hotels and rental cars booked through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. From NPR Music, I'm Sydney Madden. And this is not a drill. Beyonce is back. Beyonce is releasing her seventh solo studio album titled Renaissance this Friday, July 29th. The song you're hearing seduce your ears right now is called Break My Soul. And it's the lead single off the album so far. And it's the only taste we've gotten of the LP, too. This is B's first solo album in six years. And in between that time, she's been busy, we've been busy, and the world has changed a lot. So on today's All Songs Considered, you're getting a breakdown of where Queen Bee's been and possibly where she's going. And because this is Beyonce, you know I couldn't do this alone. I'm here with NPR Music's premier pop critic, Ann Powers. It's great to be here, Sid. And from WBEZ Chicago, we've got DJ, host, and content director of Vocalo Radio, Ayana Contreras. Ayana, what's up? Hello. Okay, so let's get into it. There's obviously mountains of anticipation for this record, but I really want people to understand why we're so excited, why this moment is feeling different than her other releases, and why Beyonce matters so much in pop culture right now and forever. First, let's rewind a little bit to remind folks of when and how she cemented herself as a pop culture auteur. Because it's not like Beyonce has been hiding under a rock all these years. Absolutely, Sydney. I mean... Beyonce really solidified her position as a 21st century auteur, I think, in the years since Lemonade, touching on so many different aspects of popular culture and showing us that albums are not the only way for a superstar to be a superstar. Mm -hmm. And you set it off perfectly, Anne. So let's go back to 2016 when Beyonce drops Lemonade. So that's her sixth studio album. And with it, she drops this incredible film of the same name. Y'all haters corny with that Illuminati mess. Paparazzi catch my fly and my cocky fresh. I'm so reckless when I rock my Givenchy dress. I'm so possessive, so I rock his rock necklaces. My daddy Alabama, mama Louisiana. You mix that Negro with that Creole, make a Texas Bama. And on Lemonade, we get a lot. I feel like a lot more than we've ever gotten of Beyonce and her life. She taps into themes of love, infidelity, grief, generational trauma, her Southern roots, police brutality, Black feminism. There's a lot there. And then in 2018, she became the first Black women to headline Coachella Music Festival in Indio, California. Now, mind you, she was supposed to headline in 2017, but she had to postpone due to a pregnancy of having her twins. So when she came back in 2018, ooh, it was with a vengeance. She came to dominate. Her set was totally conceptualized and owed to HBCUs, and it really reimagined her 20-year discography within this new historical lineage. Give me a minute and I'll be right back. If they know you're around the world and they said that 
Ayana, what do you remember most about Coachella and this moment that she created, effectively Beachella, this outer body experience for us all? I think it was one of those situations where it's almost a where were you when it happened. And I think there had been so much buzz around her and anticipation around her because of Lemonade and because of how deeply, like culturally impactful Lemonade was. Like when we look back, I don't want to like overstate this, but I think when we look back on what that decade contributed musically sort of to the country and Mm -hmm. perhaps to, you know, the greater black world even pop world in general, that album has to be listed as one of the premier creations of that time. And then I feel like the festival performance, a lot of people had high expectations considering the entire world she built with Lemonade. And then she really took that time off after having her her second pregnancy. And she used it to tap into a lot of the things that made her who she is growing up, her love of HBCUs, her love of live arrangements and performances. You saw it in the marching band. You saw it in the set listing. You saw it in a lot of the surprise performances and collaborations that were there. As a person who has many crowning moments, this was one of her big crowning moments. And then later that very same year, as if that wasn't enough, her and her husband, Jay-Z, they dropped the long-awaited collab album, which is probably one of the longest rumored hip-hop collab albums ever, Everything is Love. Happily in love. Haters, please forgive me. I let my wife write the will. I pray my children outlive me. I give my daughter my custom dresses. She gonna be litty. Vintage pieces by the time she hit the city, yeah. Vintage frames, I see nobody fucking with him. And Anne, I remember at the time when it dropped, you and our colleague Rodney Carmichael, shout out to Rodney, you also gave a great um, combo review and breakdown of how powerful this joint album was. And Anne, you wrote, this album is like a victory lap, not just for the couple who've made it through marital strife, but for hip hop itself. And you really pinpointed the importance of B showing off her rap skills on this project. I've always thought of Beyonce as a genius rapper, an innovator in the form, someone who showed the way for everyone who followed, especially for artists classified as singers, but who are incorporating rap cadences into their vocal approach. And I love that this album is all about the beautiful, harmonious relationship between Bay and Jay-Z, but also kind of about their friendly rivalry and competition. And then she, I mean, to me, she matches and exceeds him throughout the record. (laughs) But it is about how each of them have learned from each other. And then also about how they have taken on the mission of not only celebrating Black culture, African diaspora culture, embodying that, but like really being almost ambassadors for that, I think, both in terms of representing within the community, but also globally. I feel that was all there on this record. There is a level of intimacy on the record. I mean, mm. both of those people in the hip-hop community, I mean, you know, we're talking about them today and we're talking about, you know, when she became an auteur. But I'm thinking about Beyonce back when she was, like, in the Destiny's Child era when she's, like, a feature on a Jagged Edge music video. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. So I think they've been sort of larger than life for a very long time. So to really get this behind-the-scenes 
view of the relationship, I think, was very special and illuminating in all of the moving parts. I mean, I think about the song Love Happy a lot because, you know, it starts out talking about how the plan for the kids, what they're going to inherit, how that came about and how the wife was the one who set that up. And then they talk about how, you know, they were married as early as 2004 and then broke up and got back together Mm -hmm. and he had to sweat her. And, you know, the, the, the reference to the older hip hop in that song. There's just like that particular song is a cool close reading for sort of the narrative arc of their relationship. I love how y'all both tapped into the intimacy element of Everything is Love because I feel like in her next project or her next offering, we got to see a new level of intimacy of Beyonce, the artist, Beyonce, the creator too. And of course, I'm talking about the Netflix documentary, Homecoming. So in 2019, B was like, let's spin the block on this epicness of this Coachella performance and really give you a new layer into what it took to create it, what it cost her physically, emotionally, ideologically to put a feat like this together. I think more than anything, people don't understand the pain that it takes to make it look that effortless. I'm going to give an old school reference. I think a lot about like films like Fame, you know, where it shows the background thing. I mean, obviously everybody was extremely passionate and I love seeing passion to create work, but thinking about how that is. And I also, you know, in preparing for this, I was watching an old um, interview of Beyonce from like 2004. And one of the questions was, you know, your hair is always blowing in the wind in all these videos. Where does the wind come from? This is, (laughs) it was, was a funny question. And she mentioned that it was like to keep her cool during Mm -hmm. these concerts. You know, another element from that interview that reminds me of the concert itself, the documentary itself, was that she mentioned that she wore four pairs of tights for a lot of these performances because she's got to keep her stuff together, basically. Just thinking about sort of that level of detail to the performance, which clearly, you know, if she's talking about that back in 2004, has been something that has been inextricably linked to her artistry, arguably as much as her vocal prowess. The physicality she always deploys in her performances, it's second to none. And I remember there's a lot of really great key moments from the documentary. There's one part where she says she's going on a 130-day or 90-day, you know, vegan diet to really, like, tighten up and get really, like, right and tight for everything. She's just going through her her list of what she's eating that day, and it's really just raw fruit, fruit to be honest. And she's like, and I am hungry. <laughs> the way she says, I am hungry, you can tell it's a hunger that lives more than in just her stomach, you know? I'm also reminded of the iconic line when she says, until I see my notes applied, there's no reason to give more notes. And I'm going to be real. I've said that in email chains before, after. Because if the notes are not applied, why are we giving more notes, you know? (laughs) You know what I'm thinking about, too? It's like, you know, I think she thinks also a lot and has thought even very early in her career about her um, sort of body image and how it's portrayed. I don't know if you saw this, but this came out fairly recently. There was sort of a retrospective of that Austin Powers film, which was, you know, her first foray into acting. In it, they had shown her the initial art 
for the poster and she said, I don't look like that. Apparently they had tried to make her look skinnier. And she was like, mm. you need to basically essentially add some more meat to this because this is not me. And I was just mm. thinking like if she hadn't, you know, expressed her agency in that moment as like a 19 year old, how would this performance have looked different if she had been not, you know, on the ball with that for right. all of these years? Asserting her agency early has been like so pivotal in her trajectory. Absolutely. So much of Beyonce's power comes from her strong belief in the work ethic, I think, um, mm-hmm. and her willingness to share exactly these points on her journey, even though she's such a private person or, you know, her persona is grounded in this in this idea that she's preserving her privacy. At the same time, she's always willing to show the work. And I think what evolves in this period of time is not only the work ethic that creates that body that can do these amazing things, but also... So the work ethic of someone maturing into the role of a CEO, a producer, a mogul, uh, you know, a person in charge of a whole world of collaborators. And we see that in many of the projects that followed Homecoming. Exactly what you're talking about, because in 2019, B puts on her artistic director and exec hat and curator hat in a new way by dropping the Gift album, which is the soundtrack album to go along with the live action adaptation of, you you know, the classic Disney film. But this album is full, overflowing with gorgeous curation, gorgeous consideration of the African and African-American diasporic genres, Afrobeat, fusion, and, and Afro-optimism, which, Ayana, I know you know a thing or two about that. I mean, one of the songs that really struck me was Black Parade. When it dropped in 2020, right, like it was the perfect moment for it to drop because it was right around a lot of protests ripping through cities and towns across America, a lot of angst going on. But at the same time, that song was so hopeful and really, um, I guess you could say, crystallizes sort of an idea of a global blackness and sort mm-hmm. of a pan-African Americanness. just in some of the references. I mean, they're referencing playing Curtis Mayfield, they're referencing dashikis, they're referencing like Nag Champa, which are all things that are not specifically from one space in Africa. So it'd be a very inaccurate exploration of any particular region of Africa. But in the United States, particularly in the 1960s and 70s, Black people specifically were so hungry for connections to the motherland that they took this hodgepodge of cultural influences, including the Ankh charm, which also is referenced in the song, Mm -hmm. um, Ashun energy, all of these things, and mashed it together into what it was that it was to be Black in America and to be powerful. I think this is such a, an important shift on a global scale. As someone who I will admit right here uh, was a, a young white woman who wore an Ankh necklace in 1985 like, <laughs> because I was really into African music and really into reggae music and just living in the Bay Area and going to see all this great music coming to the States. I know that that period of time 
Unfortunately, the terms were being defined in a lot of ways by white promoters, white record label owners, etc. We had the, the unfortunate phenomenon of world beat music, <laughs> you know, that was mm. not being defined from the source. And I admire Beyonce so much for making this a priority in her career because it's such an important shift. So, you know, no longer is this a, a colonized discourse. This is a discourse that she is helping reclaim. And it just, to me, it feels like one of the most important, if not most acknowledged by the media moments in this period of her career. I love how we're talking about this because, as we said, 2022 is going to be her first solo album in six years. So we know it's going to hit different. But I truly believe a theme that will always remain consistent with her is Black excellence. When she's at a level in her career that some other artists or celebrities in the past have kind of distanced themselves from their racial identity in order to ascend into a level of like white mainstream upper echelon of fame and pop or whatever you want to call it. Her level of love and unflinching pride in her blackness is something that it gives me pride in my blackness. You know what I mean? It, it has that power. I think that's true. I think it all goes kind of full circle sometimes. I'm, I'm going to give you throwback reference because that's what I do. I'm thinking about back in 1972, Billy Paul put out a song called Am I Black Enough For You? And he got blacklisted on a lot of radio stations after having a huge smash with me and Mrs. Jones, one of the biggest songs of that year. I feel like if she did a cover right now, it would be a hit and all sorts of people would be singing those lyrics because folks are so attuned to what it is she's contributing to the broader culture. I mean, she's clearly very adept at creating cultural moments writ large. Let's talk about some more of her like cultural moments and like the impact of it. Changing the game with the digital drop, you know? Everything Beyonce has accomplished as an artist, she also accomplishes as a businesswoman, as an innovator in technology. And, and to me, it's that holistic approach to her career and the fact that it's very visible and audible that makes her such a great avatar for power of many different kinds. And the digital drop was a huge part of that. She knew how to use the Internet in a way that barely anyone did from the beginning, you know, from when single ladies went viral. Let's go back to that moment. owned the viral moment before anybody else did. Yeah, and I, I also think one of her innovations is because she knows that people are writing. I, w I was in JSTOR, might be a deep cut for some people, but I was in JSTOR doing research for this, and I realized how many dissertations are just written about her work and all the different deep cut references. But that being said, she's extremely good at using deep cuts that propel maybe undersung creators um, breathing new life. So we were talking about her newest record, Break My Soul, and sort of, I mean, thinking about Robin S. from, you know, the Show Me Love hit of the early 90s, talking about how, you know, excited she was that she'd been touched by 
the Beyonce gold in her own way or talking about homecoming and everything, thinking about Frankie Beverly and Mays being extremely excited that she did a cover of Before I Let Go. I mean, I, I can just imagine what that must be like because that already was a huge song at cookouts, black cookouts across America. But that's a whole nother level of folks being seen, visibility. I'm, I'm even thinking about another deep cut in Lemonade the references to Julie Dash, the director's Daughter of the Dust. I mean, she had, she was a very early, like one of her first films in the 1980s. Still, people are referencing to this day as being, you know, really important to a whole Black cinematic aesthetic, but at the same time, very undertaught in film schools and really ahead of her time. But I think the re-release of that film of Daughters of the Dust in the more recent years was directly tied to just that little aesthetic reference in Lemonade garnering a lot more interest. Well, that's the thing. Beyonce's I is always connected to a we. Yes, truly someone who lifts as she climbs, for sure. All right. So we need to take a quick break. But when we come back, we'll talk more about some of the themes of Beyonce's music and mission statements that have guided her career. And we're also going to get into what we might expect from the new album. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. On, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth? Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Climate change fuels hurricanes. China promises to stop. The big lie persists. Butterflies have hearts. Singers die. Plumbers win. Nurses persevere. Your world speaks. We listen. NPR Podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. All right, I'm Cindy Madden from NPR Music. I'm here with Ann Powers and Ayanna Contreras, and we're talking all things Beyonce and her upcoming album, Renaissance. Now, on June 30th, a few days after dropping Break My Soul, the lead single off her upcoming album, Beyonce posted a photo on Instagram of herself. She was in a titanium type of armor suit atop a translucent horse lit up with lightning. It was very much giving Xena, Warrior Princess, or Oya, Yoruba, Orisha of Thunder and Lightning, or maybe even, some are saying, Bianca Jagger riding into Studio 54 on a horse. I don't know. What I want to talk about is the caption. She wrote, Creating this album allowed me a place to dream and to find escape during a scary time for the world. It allowed me to feel free and adventurous in a time when little else was moving. My intention was to create a safe space, a place without judgment, a place to be free of perfectionism and overthinking, a place to scream, release, feel freedom. It was a beautiful journey of exploration. I hope you find joy in this music. I hope it inspires you to release the wiggle and to feel as unique, strong, and sexy as you are. Okay, first off, 
Beyonce rarely ever posts captions with her heat on the gram, okay? So that's a golden nugget right there. Secondly, to say she's actually and intentionally striving to let go and move away from perfectionism, that's always been a hallmark in her career. That's very outside of her Virgo tendencies. So there's that. But third, I really admire this move away from perfectionism because in the last 10 years, though very much a top of her game and raising everybody else's game residually, B has not been above criticism and reproach. She and her hubby, they've been called out and called in a few times by the culture. One notable example I can think of is around the time of her Adidas Ivy Park collection launch in 2020. There was criticism of Beyonce and Adidas for using sweatshops in Asia to create the product. And when the first collection launched, I remember fans of Beyonce noting that the original size run was not inclusive to all body types. And there was also the controversy, Sydney, about when Beyonce and Jay-Z were part of a Tiffany campaign, Tiffany Jewelry, and displayed a Jean-Michel Basquiat painting in that ad. And the question of should this artwork be part of this, you know, high commerce, extremely luxe sales pitch came Mm. up. But I think it's really hard for artists to ascend to this level of not only fame, but wealth and privilege and entitlement to kind of hang on to the connection with with regular people. But she's meticulous in, in the way she pursues that, I think. And this is part of maybe why she's saying, I'm releasing, I'm having fun. And even why in the Vogue interview that she did, we were in her kitchen for a moment. That Mm -hmm. was a moment, right? Like the writer was in eating ribs with Beyonce. And that felt like, okay, this is a new moment for her. She's letting us in. I'm thinking about one of these articles that came out about Aretha where she's cooking. And I think that humanization part is something that had been missing sort of in how Beyonce specifically had been portrayed in recent years. And I don't want to say that she was putting herself on sort of like an ivory tower platform situation. I don't think that's what it was. I think to the point of, you know, having so much control over the image that she puts out and how it looks a certain way at all times, at every angle. The thing about the pandemic is a lot of folks learned, the lesson learned was that the best laid plans can easily fall to the wayside with stuff that we can't even control. So I wonder if maybe what she's trying to say is that, understanding that all of the plans that she had for what 2020, 2021 was going to look like, 2022 was going to look like, she just had to scrap it just like the rest of us. And she was longing for connection like the rest of us. She was longing to for that feeling of being sweaty in the club like many of us. And her album is the gumbo of feelings that mm. she uh, experienced. We're going to go way more into um, predictions about the sonic soup that's created, the gumbo, all the spices that are created with this album. But I I do want to talk about how when she is met with moments where she is challenged or when her plans are completely warped out of her control or she had there some criticism, how she responds. Yeah, I mean, I think she's been so good at being composed. You know, I really study old Ebony magazines and the PR machines that were around a lot of these old artists have fallen away with these younger artists. So we see every little thing. And with her, I think so much of what she, you know, her ethos has been to be that. But I think she's been able to navigate when things did come her way with a lot of grace and humility and um never taking the low road. 
I think is something that I've always admired about mm. her. And going back to lifting as she's climbed all this way up, and you were talking before about the mentorship. You never know how artists, especially women artists, are going to respond to the next generation coming up after them. And I think in the history of popular music, we've sometimes seen seen rivalries. We've sometimes seen older artists uh, seeming almost threatened by younger artists. But Beyonce has connected with younger artists in a very generous and powerful way. Look at the career of Chloe and Halle, who during this time, that, that duo has really come into its own. And, you know, the fact that Chloe and Halle have individually and as a duo come into their own under Beyonce's guidance says a lot. And then there is the collaboration with Megan Thee Stallion that we get, uh, Savage Remix, one of the singles of 2020. No smoke with me. Okay. Then turn his motherfucker up 800 degree. Whole team eat. Chef's cause she's a treat. Ooh, she's so bougie, bougie. Won't never teach. I'm a savage. Had a tooth nasty. Talk big shit, but my bank account match it. Hood, but I'm classy. Rich, but I'm ratchet. Haters kept my name in their mouth, not a gagging. Here we go again. Beyonce spotting the talent. Not that it's hard to spot Megan Thee Stallion saying, okay, let's work together. And it's not just a throwaway. So with each of Beyonce's solo releases, because again, this is the first solo release we're getting in a while. It feels like a shooting star is coming back into our orbit, right? With each album, she's found a way to level up. So between Four and Self-Titled, between Self-Titled and Lemonade. And now she's 40 years old. Beyonce has entered a new decade of her life. She's in a new chapter. And as of this recording, she still hasn't revealed too much about what we're going to get on this new album. We know it's going to be 16 tracks, and some of the song titles are things like I'm That Girl, Pure Honey, Plastic Off the Sofa, or my favorite right now, Virgo Groove. And because the Beehive has been buzzing nonstop, and some of them have put on their internet detective hats, a list of credits and features has appeared online. Now, I want to note that these are still unconfirmed by Parkwood Entertainment and Columbia Records, but the track list appears to have names like Drake, Skrillex, Raphael Sadiq, Jay-Z, The Neptunes, Tricky Stewart, Sid, Lucky Day, Thames, and a whole lot more. And super producer The Dream, who is partially responsible for some of B's older hits like Single Ladies and Run the World, he's listed on a whopping 10 out of 16 tracks. So with this much artistic variety on one track listing, pulling so far from the worlds of hip-hop and R&B and Afrobeat and, and electronic I really think we're in for something big, like something so liberatingly future-facing from her. And with a name like Renaissance, we could be bearing witness to the birth of a whole new genre. Well, before we get into what we hope and think of the album, I just want to stay with Break Myself for one minute, because yet again, Beyonce rides the zeitgeist all the way to the top without us even knowing it's going to happen. The single comes out. Here's where I confess. At first, I was like, hmm. It's not really, I mean, it's a new direction that feels a little old to me. Took me a minute for the single, but then certain things happened with the Supreme Court. Certain things happened in American politics and culture. And suddenly the phrase, you won't break my soul, feels like a mandate, a manifesto. 
everything is in that phrase. I don't know, like among her many core people in her coterie, does she have a medium? Does she have a, a, a person who is telling her the future? Or does she have powers of ESP? Because how did she know to release this single at exactly the moment we needed it? It's amazing. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think in terms of what the reaction here in Chicago, I do want to talk about that because I think, I don't know that we, we immediately were like, oh, it's house. And then, you know, if you think about it, also Drake immediately also like, yes. within that same week. Had a Drake, who record. dropped his uh, surprise album, Honestly, Nevermind, which is heavily house influenced. Yeah. The, the conversation here was like, yeah, maybe he should just drop this album now because you have, when when she's about to drop an album, you want to get out of the way. Like, you don't <laughs> want the comparisons. You don't want, you don't want that smoke. <laughs> drop it. Now. Of course. I think the album's timing is just impeccable. And I think we've come to expect these zeitgeist moments from Beyonce all the way back from the white leotard days. And I think for that to be the case for an artist, to your point, Sid, who has just reached the age of 40, you know, in a pop music landscape, it just happens to not be the landscape for, as they call, seasoned saints, I've been thinking about this record uh, in relationship to seventh albums by other artists. And here are a few. Blonde on Blonde by Bob Dylan, his breakthrough double album. Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA, which made him a massive superstar. Michael Jackson's Thriller was his sixth album, totally, you know. Mm -hmm. No other album matches that in the history of recordings. Oh, maybe Ray Charles's Modern Sounds and Country and Western Music. That was his sixth and seventh album, volumes one and two. And one I want to specifically think about is Madonna's Ray of Light. It's interesting to me that at a point in her career where she was at midlife, where she wanted to make a turn, she released this record, Ray of Light, that was her intimate, spiritual... I'm confronting some things, but also I'm experimenting with a different kind of sound. I'm taking us back to the dance floor. I don't know. There might be a little bit of echo here between Ray of Light and Renaissance. We'll have to see. Is there something about house or dance that just feels ageless, too? That's interesting, Sydney. You alluded to the kind of mythological imagery of this picture of Beyonce on the horse that we have for art for Renaissance. And there is something magical about the sound of that single and the sound of house music to me. There is something multidimensional. I don't know. Ayanna, am I romanticizing it too much? I feel like people turn to the dance floor, turn to this kind of music when they want to transcend. And that's definitely... The message of Break My Soul is how uh, how it's playing out in the world. Like, think about that TikTok that Beyonce put up on her TikTok account. Like, the first, maybe was it like the first time she'd ever posted personally? But it's all fans dancing, voguing, breaking out moves that sort of offer the history of dance since, you know, the glory days of House in that little TikTok the dance floor is a sacred space. And maybe that's one reason why she wants us to go there. Right. And be together. Right. Like, I think that desire to be feel like you're part of a communal experience. Right. Is an earmark of spiritual gatherings of all sorts, religious and otherwise. So I think that absolutely that that's a part of it. And I know, again, coming from Chicago, House Central, I think... <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely something that I've witnessed. Yes, the power of the dance floor, the power of that communal experience. No matter what message she's going to give us on Renaissance, one thing is for sure, we are ready to receive it. 
Definitely. Right. I am ready. And sometimes people, you know, focus on the industry side and say, well, Beyonce's music hasn't sold as well the past few projects she's had. But I think this record is going to go right up to the top of the charts. I mean, this as far as her breaking into a a new space, a new place, a new genre um, or subgenre that is. I mean, she's had hints of she's had hints of dance records in the past, but if this is going to be a fully dance record, that'll definitely hit a new peak for her professionally on the charts. And I mean, break my soul is it debuted at number seven on the Hot 100, and I think it's still in the top ten. And this is her first top ten since 2016's Lemonade. So I don't know if that's her aim. To become another chart darling, but it's it's moving. It's definitely moving. It's moving our bodies and it's definitely moving around the charts. I would also say that, you know, historically house music has been, I don't want to say maligned, but it wasn't necessarily like titans of popular music. There was obviously exceptions, but there was a particular strain of house music that was really popular on the radio in the early 90s, thinking about groups like Black Box, CNC Music Factory, and Robin S. So I wonder if using that particular sort of Casio ding, 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 ding thing was also an intentional attempt to get back on the charts as opposed to something that was like a deeper house and I don't think this record's going to be 100% house music, but hey, call me later because <laughs> I could be wrong. But she's, there's been rumors there'd be like a country song or two on it, uh, a la Daddy Lessons. We don't know. I, I expect an omnibus from this record. I expect a journey. I don't think we're going to be on the dance floor for the whole thing. Sydney, I want to hear what you think. And I want to hear what you think about what the impact's going to be or what, you know, are we going to be living in Beyonce's world again? Are we already there? Yeah, it's a fair question. I mean, because every time a Beyonce album drops, it does feel like a tsunami of information and messaging and social commentary comes with it. But I don't know, her making it to this moment at the mountaintop and really just trying to have fun, I don't know that it's going to be a huge statement piece like some of her previous records have been. I know she has it in her, and I know she has the team around her to make it some type of larger statement, whether that be something that aligns and advocates with the LGBTQIA plus community that she's um, advocated for in, in the past, you know, in, in light of all the, the recent developments. It's really so hard to say, but I will be listening so deeply and so intently when it comes to really to decide, to hear, and to learn. We go round in circles, round in circles, searching for love. We go up and down, lost and found, searching for love. Looking for something that lives inside me. Looking for something that lives inside me. You won't break my soul. You won't break my soul. All right, this has been All Songs Considered from NPR Music. Thank you, Ann Powers. It's been so fun. Thanks, y'all. Thank you, and thank you, Ayana Contreras. Thank you. I'm Cindy Madden. Thanks for listening. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at Life Kit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. 
But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. 